I used to be normal. I used to be like everyone else. I had a family and friend who loved me. And you could say life was going pretty good. But then one day I got sick and I didn't get better. I was sick for 12 years. I sought out doctor after doctor, but they didn't know what was wrong with me or how to help me cope. All of my savings and money went to doctor's visits and I never got answers, I only got worse. My friends and family gave up on me and they didn't want to associate with me. No one wanted to be friends with a girl who was always at the doctor. And I couldn't get a job, no one was going to hire me, so I had only God to turn to. But then one day, God answered my prayers and I met a man in the street. He changed my view of the world and he changed my life. I work for the IRS. It can be easy to add an extra zero here or there, just get a little extra spending money. I mean, come on, wages are super low and I deserve a Christmas benefit too, right? Unfortunately, I've had to take from who used to be my closest friends, um, so I basically had to give up on getting people to like me. Anyways, uh, I heard about this guy going around doing crazy things, unimaginable acts, and so to see if this was legitimate, I went to see him in a park one day. And uh, when I got there, the crowd was so massive that I was all the way in the back and couldn't see a thing. So I stepped up on a bench, and as soon as I got up, we made direct eye contact. He looked me right in the eyes and kind of just motioned, ah, come on, get down from there. And so I did, and I thought, oh man, he's going to call security on me or something. But no, he just started walking towards me. And as he did, he said to me, hey, let's have dinner. And so we had dinner at my house, me. I may just be a kid, but I know what a celebrity is. So when my mom told me that there was one close by and she wanted me to meet him, I was so excited. Of course, we had to drive forever to get to him. But right as we got there, I noticed a huge crowd of people. This guy must be super famous. My mom dragged me through the crowd until we were so close I could almost touch him. I could hear him talking to some people, and I couldn't wait till I got my chance to talk to him. And then, out of nowhere, this huge guy walked up and told me and my mom we needed to take a step back, even though we were next to a bunch of people. Right before we did, the celebrity guy turned around and said something to the big guy. Right away, he stepped aside and let him through. He said he wanted to talk to me. I'm that person in your life that doesn't quite fit in or isn't accepted by everyone else. Maybe I have special needs or I'm considered the bad kid at school. Or maybe I'm just a little bit awkward. Whoever you're thinking of, I'm considered an outcast in society. I'm not accepted for who I am, and people consider me as not good enough, or that something is wrong with me. They ignore me and refuse to talk to me. But there was one person that came to me and treated me like a real person. He had a conversation with me, and it felt like he healed me. He didn't ignore me or act like I was second class. He accepted me for who I was. I was a new person, one who wasn't held back any longer, by my failures or my disabilities. I was able to go back into society and others looked at me as an equal and they allowed me to be a part of society again. I was no longer sick and hurting. I was healed. I am the woman who bled. I am Zacchaeus. I am the children. I am the leper. And I, I am loved by God. God. This morning, Plum Creek, we're going to be doing things a little bit different during the message. And actually, we need your help. If I haven't met you, my name is Tony Libertori. I'm the family minister here. And this morning, our students are going to help give us this message. 
So I'm going to do something a little unique. I'm going to ask you to take your phone out. I know you're like, whoa, we're in church. We're taking our phone out. It's okay. Take your phone out because we're going to have you help us with your phone. This morning, these students told a story from a unique perspective. They wanted you to see their story a little bit different. So I want to know how you relate to each of these characters. Maybe you relate more with the leper over here. So what you're going to do is you're going to text Plum Creek L866 to the number 22333. And you're going to get a reply, and it's just going to say thank you, and if you want to be part of it, you can do the poll here, or you just text one of those letters, A, B, C, or D, back, and it's going to say, this is the person that I relate with most. Like I said, maybe it's the leper. Maybe it's the young child. Could be the woman that bled, that would be C, or D, Zacchaeus. We're going to take that poll, we're going to put it up here throughout the message so that our students can interact with it, so they can help you and understand where you're coming from as they give their message this morning. All right, let's go ahead and continue back into our message. Even though throughout the Bible you hear that children are called blessings, they, re- they weren't really treated that way when they were young. At that time, they were viewed below women and sometimes even referred to along with household slaves. When they were asked to do something, they had to do whatever they were told without a say in anything. At that time, child abandonment and child sacrifice happened, sharing a lack of value for the children's lives back then. Oftenly, they had to help out with the family's businesses, and the males could eventually be educated. But apart from that, they had no real value until they were older. Society saw children as irrelevant and helpless. However, Jesus didn't see their age when he looked at them. Jesus saw them as people made in the image of God and people he could work through. Like in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, when the children tried to meet him. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. But the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. From this story, I want to focus on how the kids were being refused to be blessed by Jesus because of their age, and how Jesus responded. Now, not just anybody was refusing these kids. It was the disciples, Jesus' closest friends. Imagine how that must have felt, how discouraging. I mean, these people were with Jesus a lot of the time. But despite this, Jesus stopped them, and it said that he was actually angered with them. Because... Jesus saw through the fact that they were only children. He saw them as God's children, and despite their age, they are loved by God because they were made in the image of God. Zacchaeus was not a great guy. He led a life of sin with material possessions at the center. Everybody around him despised him for his job as chief tax collector, except for Jesus. When Jesus looked at him, he didn't see a heckler and a thief. He saw a heart waiting to be opened. We can read about Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And he, speaking about Jesus, entered and was passing through Jericho. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax gatherer, and he was rich. 
And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable to because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which are lost. So here, Jesus acted out of love, pure, unadulterated love. He could have continued on with his day and shunned the sinner for who he was, but Jesus showed Zacchaeus that he's worthy from love from even the highest, the holiest of holies. He set Zacchaeus on a new path, one that led to eternal life. The bleeding woman is mentioned three different times in the Bible, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in all three books, her story is told alongside those who are sick, possessed, and even brought back to life. And you can see the pattern that all of these people are outcasts. But this woman was not sick like the leper. People could be around her and doctors would see her, but they didn't want to be associated with her because they thought she was cursed. And back in this time, people were thought to be punished for their sins or the sins of their parents. So her sickness was seen as a punishment and she was looked down upon for this. She lived like this for 12 years, but still kept her faith strong in God. The truth to this story teaches us that God has a plan, and we should not doubt him. We are often so quick to question God's plan, so quick to lose faith, but instead we need to trust him. We need to trust him to be in control. When I was in middle school, I went to a CIY Believe conference, and they told me something that I will never forget. They told me that in your life there is a throne, and when you're sitting in that throne, you are in control of your life, and that's where you want to be. But you need to let God take control. You need to let him sit in the throne of your life. You can't one-cheek it, and you can't go half-seas with God. You have to give him full control. You need to trust in him. And even though this is a simple comparison, it reminds me when I find myself taking control again. But now I want to read to you the bleeding woman's story. So if you want to turn to your Bibles to Mark 5, I'm starting in verse 24. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal and under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that the power had gone out of him, and he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing it had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering." The bleeding woman's story gave Jesus the power to show us the importance of faith. She lived in almost complete solitude and was sick for 12 years but did not let her faith waver. 
She gave God control of the throne in her life and did not doubt God, nor was she angry at him, but instead she trusted him and she was healed. The lepers in Jesus' time were considered outcasts in society. Their disease was highly contagious, and any contact with others could spread the disease through the entire city. Because of this, the lepers weren't allowed to be in the city, and instead had to sit outside and beg for food or money to survive. Many who were born with leprosy could live their entire lives without ever coming into contact with another human being. Many believed that contracting leprosy was a result of themselves or others sinning against God, and this was God's way of punishing them. Just think of how your view of others changes when someone you're close to says something bad about someone else. If you thought that God thought bad about somebody, how much less would you think about them? With leprosy, a person was constantly subjected to this from friends and total strangers. The way that lepers were viewed makes Jesus' actions that much more amazing. Jesus went against the status quo not only by talking to the lepers, but by touching them and accepting them for who they were, no matter their current situation. We read in Mark 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to him and begged him on his knees, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was filled with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. Jesus touched and healed the man to show a point. He could have looked at him, and he would have immediately been healed. Jesus came to the leper where he was. He didn't make the leper do anything. He didn't say, I'll heal you as soon as you do this. Jesus came to the man where he was and healed him even though he had nothing to offer Jesus. God's love doesn't change based on who you are or what you can offer God's kingdom. Look at the poor widow in Mark 12. She only had a few pennies to give to the church, yet Jesus described her as putting more into the treasury than the richest of the rich. God's love doesn't change depending on who you are or what you have done. Everyone who goes through life deals with hardship and sin. That's okay. We're all in this together. No one is absolutely perfect. The only one who could do that is Jesus. There's nothing we can offer Jesus to, for him to award us his forgiveness and healing. But no matter who you are or what you have done, no matter what your label is or how people view you, God still loves you. His love doesn't change depending on who you are, what you've done, how badly you've messed up, or how righteous you might think you are. He loves us because we are his creation, in spite of the fact that we have sinned against him. You don't have everything together, but that means that we are able to rely on him even more. You see, Jesus doesn't care what we have to offer him. Jesus wants us to accept what he offers us. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we see in this verse? The first part that I see is that God loves us tremendously. Let that sink in for a second. God loves us. The maker of the universe, the one who created all of the creatures on the earth, loves us. Nowhere in the Bible do we read him saying that about any other creature. We don't read God loves the deer or God loves the mosquitoes, but do we really expect him to? That's beside the point. Why does God love us? God loves us because we are his children. Parents love their newborn children because they are their children not because they did anything or because they might do anything. We are loved because we are his. The second part of this verse says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. We weren't perfect humans who had one thing missing. We weren't people who knew exactly what to do when Jesus came. We were lost, broken people who had no clue what to do. And in some ways, we still are. We don't know what to do when things don't go as expected. 
when a family member dies or is unexpectedly hospitalized. Even as teenagers, we don't know how to deal with the drama that comes from public school or what to do when class gets hard and you have finals next week. The bottom line is, we don't know how to go through life on our own. And the truth is, we aren't supposed to. We aren't made to go through life knowing exactly what to do in any and every situation. The only one who's ever able to do that is Jesus himself. We aren't made to have it all together or to be perfect. We are made to rely on and have a relationship with Jesus. So we know that God loves us and he wants us to have a relationship with him. But what happens when we don't quite do what God wants? When we sin, our Heavenly Father is grieved. But does that mean that he loves us any less? Of course he doesn't. Jesus says that he didn't come to heal the healthy, but the sick. When Adam and Eve sinned at the beginning of creation, they were no longer able to have a relationship with him. And because we are sinners as well, we also cannot have a relationship with him without the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus made for us. There isn't any denying this fact. We are human, and we are sinners. God knew this before he sent his son to earth, and yet he sent him anyway. Why did he do this? Because he knew that we were the ones that needed him the most. He wants us to have a relationship with him, but because of his divine nature, he cannot be in the presence of sin. But this doesn't mean that he doesn't love us. Remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love for us does not change because of our sin. He loves us anyways. So what does this mean for us today? It means that no matter what is happening in your life, no matter how others view you, or if you are accepted by everyone in your life, God loves you. You aren't alone, even if you don't have everything together, or you don't know quite what to do. God loves you and will guide you through whatever it is you are going through. Psalms 48:14 says, For this God is our God, forever and ever. He will be our guide, even to the end. This verse is saying that God will be with us, always, and that even though we don't know what it is we need to do, or where we need to go, He will guide us there, and His love for us will never change. The only thing that we need to do to gain this eternal guidance is be baptized into Him. When we are baptized into Christ, we receive the knowledge that we are sinners, and yet Christ loves us and died for us anyways, so that we might spend eternity with him. We know that even though we are still going to sin in this life, God's love for us will not change toward us. No matter what we do or have done, God will love us. His love doesn't change no matter how badly we mess up. The thought of that is pretty relieving, isn't it? So now the question is, what do we do with this? Well, first, we must realize that just because we are forgiven does not mean that we are let off the hook and are free to do what we want, because we're already forgiven, right? We are forgiven so that we are able to become the creation that God originally intended for us. His love will never change, but that does not mean that we don't need to strive to be the best Christian that we can be. It's because God loves us so much that we should try to fulfill what God intends for us to do. Luke eleven twenty eight says, Blessed rather are those that hear the word of God and obey it. What Jesus is saying is that we are loved no matter what, and that love won't change. But what God wants from us is for us to obey him. And that even though we don't all the time, God still loves us. Oftentimes in our lives, we feel as if there is no one that loves or accepts you for who we are. But that is the miracle of Jesus. He came to this earth and sacrificed his life for us because he knows that we aren't perfect, that we don't have it all together. No matter how bad you are, God loves you. The worst people in the world will look at and think, your actions are awful. How could anyone love you? But God does. He loves us for who we are, even though we aren't perfect. His love towards us doesn't change. He always has and always will 
Love you. Throughout the Bible, God shows us how he does and how we as Christians should use children. He believes he can use the youth to set an example. Like in Mark chapter 10 that I talked about earlier, but specifically verse 15. He says, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. From this verse, he's saying that we need to believe in him like a child, with blind, with blind trust. As a kid, you don't question things that seem impossible near as much as you do when you're older. Even as just a teenager, I'm finding certain topics to be harder to understand, believe, and grasp than I used to. Like the idea of the Trinity and why if God knows and has control over everything, he lets bad things happen to good people. Things like this can cause us to doubt him. But he tells us we need to trust him without doubts, like a child. Not only does God set an example with children, he chooses to use them. Like in the miracle with the fish and the bread, when he uses the little boy's lunch. And when David fought and killed Goliath, he was only a teenager. And when God chose Timothy to work through Timothy to spread his truths, I think that Timothy's story can relate to that people still don't think that the youth can do what they're capable of. We aren't taken seriously. Now it, wasn't, now it is better than it was back then, but there's still a bias against us because we're young. We're judged by our age and not our actions, much like Timothy was. But when people tried to disdain him in 1 Timothy, God said to him, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect, neglect your gift, which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. From these verses, I took away two things. So from the first verse, God is saying that we will be discriminated against because of our age, but we shouldn't let that affect us. Instead, we should set examples with the actions that God calls us to do. Like with our speech, he tells us not to curse or use his name in vain. Or with our faith, we need to have a sincere faith and not to be ashamed of it. Now the second thing God's telling us is that he's given each of us a gift that we can use to serve him with. As youth, we have lots of opportunities to discover our gift, like through classes, clubs, teams, or we can just ask God to help us. As adults, you may already know, or maybe you're still figuring it out. Whatever it is, once we discover our gifts, we can use them as a way to serve God. Oftentimes, I think we're looked down on because we don't have as much we can't do as much, and we're not given as many opportunities. This summer, I got the chance to go to my first CIY move. There's something called Kingdom Workers, and these are stories of kids our age who use their gifts to serve the kingdom of God. For example, there was one about a girl who was a talented artist. After going to move, she felt that God was calling her to use her art as her ministry. So, 
she started doing live paintings during her worship and made encouragement cards for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes Club at her school. Now, she didn't do anything huge. These were just simple acts. But something another one of the kingdom workers said, I think explains it really well. She said, what I see as a small and insignificant task is actually huge if I'm being obedient to God. And we all need to always remember this. Us up here on stage and the others who have helped with this service this morning are kingdom workers too. And we're doing our kingdom work today. And at some time, God will give us all the opportunity to serve. Now, we may not be able to give a lot of money to the church or travel across the world on a mission trip to make a difference. But all we have to do is utilize the gifts that God gave us and use them to serve his kingdom. Because in his eyes, that's just as important. So to the 28% of you that said that you identified most with the young child, don't think that you have to wait to be used by God because you are young. Come as you are, and you will be loved. I want to speak now to the 24% of you that identified with Zacchaeus. You see, God does not care about your past and what you've done. He wants to use your gifts for kingdom work. Paul wrote in a letter to the city of Corinth, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Here, Paul is speaking from experience. He was born Saul of Tarsus, and for the first half of his life, he worked to persecute Christians. However, one day on a street, he encountered God, and God's amazing love changed him down to the bone. He became Paul. This is incredible because it shows us that it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. You can become anything that God wants you to be. God said there that he doesn't counter sins against us. We are a new creation. We see this all over the Bible. Paul, Zacchaeus, the thief that uh, died next to Jesus on the cross, and the prostitute that uh, was about to be stoned but saved by God's grace. All of these people were redeemed from a life of sin. However, love is only the first step. God teaches us to be servants. In Colossians chapter 3, we read, if I can find it, (laughs) whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And then later in James, What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. After receiving the love of God, we're called to do great things through him, kingdom work, to spread his love to those who haven't felt it yet. Here, God isn't saying, okay, it's okay to not do my kingdom work. He's saying faith is dead by itself. God accepted Zacchaeus, sin and all, 
and he loves every one of you just like he loved him. He's cherish he cherishes every single one of you and is waiting for you. Every one of these examples, Zacchaeus and Paul, were, giving, uh, were, were followed by an action. For example, Zacchaeus giving his, forgiving his debts and Paul going to follow God. God is waiting to do amazing things through every one of you, if he hasn't already. Because of our sins, we're condemned to die. But God's amazing grace and unyielding acceptance saves us from death to spend eternal life with him. Looking back at the bleeding woman's story, Jesus used her faith to heal her physically. You see many stories like this throughout the Bible. Use the paralytic as an example. Jesus initially forgave him of his sins, which healed him spiritually, and that's all that he needed, but Jesus healed his physical wounds anyway. We must remember that we only need to be healed spiritually because this world is temporary and we will not hold our physical bodies when we are in heaven. We have to also remember that every prayer will not be answered the way we desire it, and that is often hard to hear. The world is filled with evil, corruption, and sickness, and this can often happen to those that we love. But the bad things in the world are not excuses or reasons to lose faith in God. We need to turn to God in our worst of times and trust him. But when you turn to God, you need to remember to listen. Because if God is telling us something that we don't want to hear, we often don't want to listen. But you must also remember to turn to God in your best of times, because even though life is going good, we still need God. But keep your faith strong, and he will answer your prayers. And if you give him control, he can open your eyes to his plan for you. But allowing God to open your eyes can be difficult, so let's start by defining what faith is. When you look up the definition of faith, it says that faith is the complete trust in someone or something. But the Bible defines faith in Hebrews 11.1, 1, and it says, Now faith is confidence in what we hoped for and assurance about what we do not see. Let's break that down. Confidence in what we hoped for. We hope to live an eternal life with God in heaven, and Jesus' sacrifice allows us to do that. And assurance about what we do not see. We cannot see God or Jesus in the flesh today, but through scripture and faith, we can learn the truth. So you can see that faith in Christianity means something altogether different than the first definition that I read to you. Through our faith, God can take care of us. He can answer our prayers as he did with the bleeding woman, the leper, Zacchaeus, and the children. But he is also there to answer our questions. Faith is an important word in Christianity. Our faith is a powerful thing, and God shows us this through stories in the Bible. He shows us that faith in Jesus has the potential to give us forgiveness that we, we do not deserve as sinners. But God also makes it clear that even though we are sa saved through our faith, we cannot use forgiveness as an excuse to sin. We need to walk the walk. But entering the new year, everyone has resolutions that, let's be honest, after a couple of months will fizzle out. And it says that it takes 66 days on average to make something a habit, but it can take up to 254 days. And they're talking about consecutive days, so like every day for a little over two months of doing the same thing to make something a habit. Creating habits are not easy, and they require a lot of time and effort that people are not willing to put forth. So why is it so hard to pursue your New Year's resolution? Because we never take the time to make them a habit. 
a very popular resolution is weight loss. So everyone hits the gym the first couple weeks of January, but when they wake up to aching muscles, they're very quick to stop. When people get busy and things get hard, we stop. So look at your faith like a resolution. Look at your faith like getting in shape. And then look at memorizing scripture and going to church as your treadmill. To strengthen your faith, you need to work it out. So if you go to church every Sunday and you read your Bible every day, your, your, your faith will start to strengthen. And you need to keep your faith strong for times when it is tested. You need to be ready for a marathon. Because if you are weak in your faith, it is easy to downplay our mistakes or brush it off as no big deal because God still loves me, right? And although this is true, we need to be better. Sin is sin in God's eyes, and we need to own up to it. God knows we are not perfect, so we should not act like we are perfect. We are all sinners, and we all make mistakes. So my challenge to you is to own up to your wrongdoings. So then you can repent and get back on the right path to make better choices. We can do our best to live our lives as Christians, strengthening our faith and setting an example for those who do not know, to lead them to a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. God's love never changes. God says that we're not defined by our sin. Even if you are young, you are still loved by God. Through our faith, we are saved. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you to get everyone safely here, and that I want to thank you that we were able to share our message with them. I want to thank you that you gave us the scripture so that we that can remind us to keep our faith strong, to remind us that we have gifts, to remind us that our past does not define us, and to remind us that God loves us no matter what. I want to thank you for reminding us that we can always come as we are. Amen.